Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, we meet Baptist Loiseau, who works as a cellar master overseeing Louis Treyes Cognac. He tells us how he got the important role at the age of 34 and what having to think decades ahead means in his profession. We will decide if it's rich enough, elegant enough in terms of tasting, showing the best facets to uh, to be put aside to uh, be part of uh, of Lutrez after decades and decades of aging. Then different food cultures have one thing in common, cookies. We meet the authors of a new book that has recipes from Japan to Somalia. This is the new face of Ireland. We're going to be a rainbow nation. It's really exciting because if everybody got together and baked their own cookie around a table, I mean, the future of Ireland is delicious. All that to the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. Up first today, we hear from Baptiste Loiseau, who became the youngest ever cellar master for Rémi Martin at the age of 34. Overseeing the highly rated Louis Treyes Cognac, he has had to learn to think generations ahead in his work. Baptiste visited London recently and I met him to discuss what his role as one of the foremost Cognac authorities entails and how he got where he is today. It has been a long transmission between the previous Cellarmeister and myself. So I joined the house of Rémi Martin in 2007. And during seven years, I have been trained by the previous Cellarmeister, Madame Pierrette Richet. She taught me everything from the land, from Grand Champagne, to the final blends. And uh, finally, in 2014, she decided to retire and she passed me the baton. So I have been the Cellarmeister for Louis XIII uh, since then, since uh, 2014. So during that induction period, what kind of things were you taught? In fact, it started in the vineyards. So cognac is made with grapes, uh, wild grapes. So much more precisely for Louis XIII, we are only dealing with the first cru of cognac, which is called Grand Champagne. So of course, understanding what is the style of the house is to go in the countryside and understand what is going on in the in the fields, in the vineyards. So all these steps going from the grapes to uh, the final eau de vie and the cask, also to understand what is the style of the house and how to recreate it, how to reproduce and be consistent in the making. Tell me about your responsibilities as a cellar master. What does your work include? As a cellar master, I have uh, the supervision of all the quality going from the quality of the grapes to the final quality of the blend that will be uh, welcomed in every single decanter of retress that we will have and that all our clients will share all over the world. So it's privileged to uh, be the one that will uh, have with my team the responsibility of making it consistent and uh, having uh, really the uniqueness of such a wonderful blend that has been created in 1874. So it's a long history and uh, it's a transmission between generations of cellar masters with all the treasures we have in the cellars. So now you're obviously in London and let's talk about the reasons for that shortly but before yeah. that can you it sounds like there are so many responsibilities but can you try to describe what your typical work day would be like? There is not 
typical workday because we are really uh, working with the season. So uh, in fact, it's really uh, following the, the the rhythm of the season when it's the distillation period. That is to say, from November to uh, mid March. Really, it will be a uh, lot of tasting, blind tasting of the unaged eau de vie that have been uh, done by our growers. So we are working with almost 800 growers that uh, have uh, grapes and pot stills. So the daily routine in winter time it's really to select the eau de vie that would have the best potential of aging that will be a one-day part of a final blend of Fritrez. I won't be the one that will make this final blend with this eau de vie because they have to be aged much more longer than a generation of Cellar Master, but it will be the legacy for the next generation of Cellar Master. Tell me more about that kind of way of thinking. Indeed, in yeah. your work, you have to think decades forward. What does that mean in practice? It's all based on having the vision of a potential of aging. So when we do the blind tasting of this eau de vie, just coming from the pot still, so I'm surrounded with my team, the tasting committee, and all together we will decide if it's rich enough, elegant enough in terms of tasting, showing the best facets to uh, to be put aside to uh, be part of uh, of retrace after decades and decades of aging. So it's really going back to what I learned from the previous uh, seller master Pierre Trichet and having the idea that what we are selling thing now will be the future legacy and treasures for the next generation. I know this is a tricky question, but I'm wondering can you name a lesson or two you learned from your predecessor? Something she told you what are the most important things or the most valuable lessons you learned? During the transmission period with Pierrette, I also had the chance to uh, meet the previous cellar master, so Georges Clot and André Giraud. So we are still four generations of cellar master alive for Louis XIII, which is just amazing in terms of making, but also in terms of encounters. When I was besides these three uh, wonderful cellar master, the first advice was really be demanding. No compromise on quality. That's the first advice. Always being demanding on the selection on the eau de vie and the vision uh, for this eau de vie to be aged. And the second advice would be um, you will succeed if you are not changing the style of Fritrez. How stressful is your work? I really see it as a lot of privilege to have access to all these treasures and to all, yeah, all these eau de vie that have been put aside by the previous ones. So it's not stress is really the sense of responsibility from the very beginning and because I had these seven years being trained by the previous cellar master I just couldn't imagine that I would be the cellar master at that time but after seven years of training I have in my hand and uh, finally in my uh, in my memory everything that has been taught by the previous one so I'm here for a certain period of time until I will find the next one to follow the, the path for Louis XIII. Mm. So big responsibility, but most of all, I really see it as a privilege to be the cellar master for Louis XIII. And now the reason why you are in London, you're here for yeah. for reasons. Yeah, I'm here in London, so really uh, happy to be back here after uh, almost four years without traveling. So it was really important for me also to represent the house and to come in the markets. And uh, here, uh, it's really uh, crucial for me to be here because we launched the reopening of our Louis boutique in Harrods. And I had the chance yesterday to go and see the place. And it's just amazing, amazing to see how our, our decanters and all our, our Louis blends are uh, highlighted in such a wonderful place. And what does your summer look like? Any, any future plans or anything special this summer when you go back to France? 
being the Seller Master of Retrez, you have to find the right balance between tradition and innovation. So we have uh, lots of uh, different innovation that will come in the next two or three years. So of course, uh, going, back in, going back in the cellars, just to see how these blends are evolving and uh, also uh, getting prepared for the next harvest. So we had a lot of heat for the moment in Cognac. So we are planning harvest that will be uh, quite soon, uh, beginning of September. So with the team, we will be ready to welcome all these wonderful grapes from Grand Champagne and maybe after a few uh, few months after distillation we'll see if some are showing their best facets to become uh, Louis XIII after aging. Tell me about how, how the weather is impacting your work and and what it has meant for you that it's, it's rather warm in yeah. these parts of Europe at the yeah. moment. Everything is based on the rhythm of the season and of course uh, we have to uh, be cautious of the fact that we have to adapt to uh, climate change. We have also to uh, adapt the way we are growing the grapes, deciding how to make the harvest and how to make the winemaking and also the distillation to make it consistent. So of course we are facing from time to time and it's the case that here much more heat, drought also, lack of water. So we know that the ripeness of the grapes will be a little bit different. So we have to be cautious, we have to go in the fields, we have to listen to all our growers to taste some berries and to decide when is the best balance between sugar and acidity before taking the decision to harvest. So it's part of our DNA, it's part of the DNA of all our growers to, uh, to compete with uh, nature, but just to uh, adapt to the conditions we are facing. Baptiste Loiseau there, he's the cellar master for Louis Trez Cognac. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Sophie Monahan Coombs. First up, in Japan, the beverage giant Asahi Group Holdings Limited wants to expand into the North American market. The company, which owns brands including Asahi, Superdry, Pilsner Urquell and Grolsch, wants to tap into the non-alcoholic market and is considering brand acquisitions or working with startup companies. Staying in Japan, the government has launched a nationwide competition calling for ideas to encourage people to drink more alcohol. A recent change in attitudes among young people has led to a slide in tax revenues. The Sake Viva campaign asks 20 to 39-year-olds to come up with proposals to help revitalize the popularity of alcoholic drinks. Good news for Asahi drinkers. Elsewhere, growth has been slow for a vineyard in Crete which saw 300 acres of vines destroyed by wildfires last month. There are now plans to rebuild after an online crowdfunding page was created to help winemakers. But this could take several years. Fortunately, some of the ungrafted vine roots are still intact, and the Franck de Pied group would like to involve the growers in a new campaign for UNESCO recognition. And finally, the iconic powerhouse bar in Hollywood, which sits around the corner from the Walk of Fame, is set to open next month under new ownership. After more than two years' closure, visitors can look forward to being welcomed with a Manhattan or margarita as they take in the well-preserved dive bar charm. Thanks, Sophie. You are listening to Monocle 24. 
This month, a new cookbook will widen your cookie jar's horizons. The United Nations of Cookies by New Imprint Blaster Books collects recipes such as Japanese wasabi cream cheese cookies and Finnish lusikka leivat. Monaco Sebastian Stevenson spoke to the two co-authors, Jess Murphy, chef from Kai Restaurant in Galway, and Owen Glusky, baker from Bread 41 in Dublin. Sebastian spoke to them both at the Bread 41 Bakery Cafe with railway tracks on its roof and asked them about how the cookbook came about. I'm a high-profile supporter of the UNHCR in Ireland, and I went out to Beirut and Jordan, and I was like, we really need to capture people's spirits behind this. And, like, obviously, in lockdown, I used to ring Owen quite a lot, and I was like, listen, I, I want to do something for refugees. I, I want to do a book, but I don't know what to do. And then, so that's how the plan started rolling. And so how did you yourself phone get involved? Yeah, it was it was probably two conversations with Jess. Um, when I first got into the industry, actually, Kai and Galway was somewhere I went to and like sort of looked up to Jess. I mean, like really decent food, doing everything right, like proper seasonally cooking. What she, what in essence, she wanted people to eat. So that was where our, I sort of relationship started. Then over years, we built, and then during the pandemic, I think the original idea was during the pandemic we pivoted the business to sort of like online and a couple of markets. So we bought like a 1948 milk float. And uh, Jess was on to me going, hey, let's get your milk float and uh, why don't we like make cookies off the back of it and serve people milk at like the big, it was actually the Big Grill Festival. And I was like, sounds amazing. And that year, I don't think the Big Grill happened. And then it went from that, Jess, and Jess, Jess is the sort of person for those who don't know her, she just picked up the phone, hey, this is what I'm doing, let's do it. And, and I love that about her because it's like, she just comes with an idea and runs with it. And that's what I've sort of always done things like, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. So then the book came about. And I think in fairness to Jess, when she came about the book, it's like, the book isn't its own and Jess, but we're just the facilitators of the book. You know, it's like, let's do a book together, but let's tell people stories. Let's think of something that everyone loves and goes. And it was like, let's, hey, let's do a cookie. And then you get the, oh, is it a cookie? It is a biscuit. It's, it's, it's just a cookie. It's just something that all these wonderful, you know, migrants and um, refugees have that are in Ireland. And we just, we just can't put them all together in a book. And we're on the back of that looking to sell the book. And all our, the author proceeds were given straight back to the UNHCR. So really exciting. So we maybe might talk a little bit about the book and how it's a bit different in that both your names are obviously on it. But as you go through the recipe book, you'll actually see that each of the recipes from around the world has an, a different author as well. So maybe tell me a little bit more about that and I guess why you decided to go to do that and how, the, how did you come across those names as well? I had worked with quite a lot of these people before and known these, like quite a lot of the people in the book and so has Owen and so we were like, this book's going to be pretty easy to write because, you know, we know all these immigrants, being an immigrant myself, we know all these immigrants and, we, and I know all the refugees so we'll just put them all together and interview them, which was fab because then, like, we heard stories that we didn't even hear before of other people. Like, there's Auntie Suzanne from Iran in there and Auntie Suzanne basically got her whole family out of Iran in the 80s. She, she paid a smuggler to smuggle them out. And she went into, like, basically a refugee camp. And then they sent her to Sligo in Ireland in the 80s. So she brought her whole family, her little sisters and everything like that. And it's an amazing story. Like, she walked into Kai and she had the pistachio cookies for all the staff. And I was sitting there and I said, you're from Iran. And she goes, yeah. And I was like, you don't have a niece living in New Zealand, do you? And she goes, yes, her name is Farhan. And I had met her niece two years ago in New Zealand. She's actually the deputy ambassador for the Irish embassy in New Zealand. 
So Ferran actually picked me up from the airport in Wellington and it was just like this really unusual loop and then like obviously Auntie Suzanne was meant to be in my life because I see her all the time. Her son studies at um, the uh, Galway University and uh, yeah, like so behind every cookie is a story like Auntie Suzanne's, you know, so that's what makes a book, you know, just a bit more in depth. I'm wondering from this collection of recipes you have here, was there any that you have a particular fondness for or or did you actually did you have to try them out or was it more just a question of collecting them or was there one that you yourself are particularly like oh, I'd like to try this you had different yeah. favorites to me we, yeah weird I think like here so we tested everything here the team in Bread 41 tested everything and it was weird like and in Bread 41 strange enough we have 14 different nationalities working here and it, it's it's something so strange where I think the Japanese cookie and Sarah and I have a Japanese girl working she's like that's not Japanese you know and it's like well it is but it's just like a region thing it's no different than we have two Italians inside, one north, one south, and they disagree and everything. Predominantly focaccia. It's like, yeah. this This contains semolina, this doesn't. So even when the cookies were being created, um, I think the Venezuelan cookie as well, we have a guy from Venezuela. And he's like, whoa, where's this from? And I think at the time we were doing it, we were giving who gave us the thing. And he was Googling who it was. And was, and it, again, it was a region thing. The cookie that I like, I run down, it's not only because we recently made it, was I like the thumbprint cookie. I think they're all very, very simple, but they all taste completely different, if that makes sense. It's, it's, it's really, yeah. really weird, you know? One of my favourites is the Venezuelan cookie, which is Marlon. Marlon contributed to that. And Marlon got himself and his friend out of Venezuela. Um, his friend had HIV at the time. So basically Marlon was a facilitator to actually protect them both because obviously HIV in Venezuela is absolutely, it's basically a double death sentence. So Marvin is amazing. He got out of there. Marlon's married a beautiful Irish guy. Marlon's five years sober, I think, and then also runs a Marlon radio show to himself, which myself and Owen will be on on Sunday. But he's just an amazing, beautiful man that volunteers all his time to help other people. And I'm a big fan of those kind of people. So, you know, I'm biased, but yeah, Marlon's my favorite cookie there. And I think, it, I think it's interesting when you look at a book and look at the books that we're all actually reading. It's like there's one person writing a lot of books about all different flavors of food, you know, different regions, different. And I think we live in a different world now, like, and it's interesting that I think the format will change in the next definitely five to seven years is because if you have a musician who's good now, you know, they can put something out on social media and you can hear it directly. But years ago, you had to know someone to get there. And that was the same with, with books and recipes that if, if you can put it out there and get someone to read it or listen to it, you know, it's received differently. And this is, you're going to be able to give these people who m- no one might know a voice and let them be heard, you know. So it's important to, to that too. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important stepping stone. You know, you build the platform so people can take a step up. It's like getting on your hands and knees and letting somebody use you as a step. That's what you should be doing at our stage in our careers. It's all about, you know, lifting people up and supporting people. So I suppose, you know, calling the book The United Nations of Cookies implies like maybe a definitive, perhaps encyclopedic tome. But if you ever were to get a copy, it is quite a slim volume. Is the focus of the book possibly to introduce people to different types of biscuits and cookies rather than be sort of like the book people go to to find a specific recipe they're looking for is it more to uh, widen uh, people's horizons in terms of what is actually they could cook for themselves or bake for themselves yeah it's all about like introducing the new island of ireland you know this is the new face of ireland we're going to be a rainbow nation 
It's really exciting and it's going to be super tasty because if everybody got together and baked their own cookie around a table, I mean, the future of Ireland is delicious. Yeah, honestly, exactly what Jess said. It's like if we can just get, you know, I suppose with the, with the, the book being small, a couple of things was let's keep it small, let's keep it simple, and let's keep it to use it. So we all of these, I actually read recently like that, one in six people buy a, buy a cookbook just to put on their table for display and never open it. So we want, like we want people, I want this book to be in people's kitchens and be full of flour, full of broken eggshells, full of bits and bobs. I want it to be a dirty book, a book that's been used. Yeah, and it is. As Jess said, it is the, the, the future of Ireland is around a table and everyone coming together around and cooking and eating different food. Imagine that book in primary schools. Imagine how happy those little faces would be, like getting stuck in and making them little cookies. And, you know, there's, there's nothing like seeing a joy on a kid's face, you know, when they're rolling their sleeves up. And, yeah, it's just beautiful. I actually always find this whenever I do any baking to kids or I do it with people coming in. It's like kids are way easier. They'll just, they'll get it and they'll eat it and go, I either don't like it or I like it. It's adults that come in, they tend to ask these questions. But when he said this yesterday, we said, like, this book is for absolutely everybody. And, you know, if you like baking or if you don't like baking, if you've never baked before, encourage you to bake. Like, and, and I always say this, anytime there's trouble in the world, anytime we go through a pandemic, we go through food shortages, we always end up back in the kitchen. We always end up feeding ourselves because what we don't know is that's the comfort. That's the memory. Unfortunately, in Ireland, um, we're living in a generation where two generations of, of now, so a mum, a daughter, a father, a son, whatever it is, don't have to cook, don't have to feed themselves. So, like, the bigger role for this is get this book, let's get the kids cooking, let's get everyone cooking and baking and together. So do you feel that the, uh, the interest and even revival of, uh, I suppose, or, or the growth of the hospitality scene hasn't necessarily translated into more people actually cooking? Obviously, there was the, the sourdough... Yeah excitement during the first lockdown but do you think that people are not necessarily cooking as much in their homes anymore or, or inclined to kind of cook as much as they may have before yeah I think I think definitely the question people are, I think nowadays people are asking themselves listen we had the great you know every the great resonation you know and the and I think it was like was it like four or five million people walked out of their jobs and had enough I think they're asking questions more questions they're asking is why am I doing what I'm doing so people are might have got into a job because it pays well and they're like I don't want this to define me so they're getting back I think people are cooking and baking at home I think sometimes people are afraid to ask what things are or how you do something and like you would see that like people like and honestly, if you're in Galway, call into Jess and ask Jess. If you don't know what something is, call in and say, it's Jess there. If she's not there, ask Dave. You know, what is this? What, how do you use it? And like the open conversation needs to be. And people say, oh, food is a big thing. But we're still having, we need to have a bigger conversation about food. What we're eating, how we're eating it, when we should be eating it. And we have all the chefs. It's not just me and Jess. There's a wider audience there. It's just everyone will help, you know. Um, get, get cooking, get baking again and keep doing it. Jess Murphy from Kai Restaurant in Galway and Owen Klosky, baker from Bread 41 in Dublin there, in discussion with Monaco's Sebastian Stevenson. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you are listening in Portland, Oregon. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously, you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi and our studio engineer was Emily Sands. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Rihanna with cheers. Drink to that. Thanks for listening.